Willkommen Wenner to Kvasir's Corner, your gateway to the Viking Age. I'm Jacob, and this week we will be going a bit off script with today's topic. For those of you who've been following the show, we had been exploring the world of Norse mythology, as described in Snorra Sturluson's Prose Edda. The plan this week was just to publish the next episode in that series, where Nick and I continue our look at the creation of the Norse world at the hands of the brothers Odin, Vili, and Ve. Now, don't worry. For anyone wanting us to continue that story, we definitely will be coming back to it soon. However, uh, something came up in the world of Viking pop culture recently, and in an attempt to remain up with the times, I thought we would take a quick break from the Prosetta to discuss this newly relevant topic. So, sit back, shine up your shamrocks, and pour yourself a pint of Guinness, if you can legally drink, as we look at the history of the Viking Age in Ireland. After these words from the Viking Encampment. Kvasir's Corner is presented by Minnesota's own Viking Encampment. If you'd like to stay up to date with the encampment and get more fun and informational Viking content, please follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Viking Encampment, as well as on Twitter and TikTok at Viking Encamp MN. If you've been enjoying Kvasir's Corner or any of our other content, such as our Hell or High Water Dungeons and Dragons series, please consider supporting us on Patreon. We have many different support levels, each with special exclusive rewards for your support. These include early content access, behind-the-scenes content, access to the VE's private Discord server, digital hangouts with the Vikings, and, at the highest level, the status of honored guest at our, at our in-person events. If you love our digital and in-person content, and would like to see us expand to create even more, you can find us on patreon.com forward slash Viking Encampment. Thank you for all your support. Skull. Now, I can guess the question some of you may be asking. How do we jump from the Prose Edda to Viking Age Ireland? What's the connection here? And I can also guess that some of you already know what the connection is, uh, probably from the title of this podcast episode itself. But just so everyone is on the same page, I will fill you in. Uh, Ubisoft Video Game Studios just released some new downloadable content for their newest Assassin's Creed game, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, uh, which takes players into the world of 9th century Northern Europe. While the, the vanilla game, the base game, uh, lets you explore Norway, England, and even parts of North America, this new expansion, this new downloadable content, takes the player to the Emerald Isle of Ireland for more hack-and-slash Viking adventures. We've talked about the game briefly during our Myths and Misconceptions episode uh, way back when, I believe that was episode one, way back when we first started this whole adventure. Um, so if you haven't yet, go back and check that out uh, for our thoughts on the game kind of as a whole, looking at some things that they did right, some things that they could have improved on, and just our, our general thoughts. Uh, we talk about, a, we'll talk about a lot of other um, myths and misconceptions about Vikings in that episode as well. But anyway, in honor of the Wrath of the Druids uh, downloadable content being released, I thought it would be a good idea to go over the history that the game will attempt to recreate. 
So, let's go ahead and get started. Part 1. Ireland Before the Vikings Now, Ireland, in the late 8th century, before the coming of the Viking Raiders, was very homogenous in terms of culture and social structure. The Irish Gaels, uh, Gaels referring to the the cultural group, uh, the kind of Celtic cultural group that made up the the Irish, the the Scots, um, and no, the Welsh were not included in the Gaels. The Welsh were Britons. So so the cultural group that made up the kind of Irish and the Scottish uh, peoples, um, the Irish Gaels shared a, a language. They shared a political structure. And they had a shared religion in Christianity. Ireland had been uh, Christianized since the the 5th century. Uh, I'm pretty sure everyone has a vague idea of who St. Patrick is, uh, the the patron saint of Ireland. And he he was the one who came to Ireland in the 5th century and established a foothold for Christianity. And from there, it really blossomed into the majority religion and the major faith of the island. So, so the Irish, the Irish people, uh, had that common language. They had that similar political structure, similar cultural structure, and that shared uh, religious faith. So, you would imagine that Ireland was a, a relatively peaceful place with all this kind of hegemony and the, the similar worldview, similar language people can communicate. So you'd think they would be able to kind of kind of live in, in peace with one another. Well, that was not exactly the case. Uh, just because they shared these traits does not mean that life in Ireland was calm and peaceful before the Vikings arrived. So the Irish held on to a tribal clan social structure that had been used by... Um, Celtic and Gaelic culture for generations since uh, before the time of the Romans. And Ireland, not having been conquered by Rome, were able to continue this system, this tribal clan system of social and political structure, basically uninterrupted. So the people of Ireland lived in a kind of rural communal farming society in small farming villages. Large urban centers um, at this time in Ireland, uh, again, this time being the late 8th century, um, large urban centers were very uncommon uh, in Ireland at the time. And the, the ones that did exist uh, sprung up in attachment to monasteries and church life uh, after the coming of Christianity in the 5th century. So... By the by, the eighth and the ninth centuries, because of this strong connection, this urban connection to to the church, uh, the Christian church was strongly bound to many different aspects of um, life for the Irish. Uh, even though there is some evidence that shows that aspects of old Celtic paganism 
had not been completely removed from the population. Again, with most of the population being relatively rural, uh, kind of a country farming society, it was probably easy for pockets of the old ways and the old faiths to continue even when the majority of the population had converted to Christianity and Christianity had been kind of the dominant framework for about four, four centuries. Politically, Ireland was divided roughly into five districts. There were the districts of Ulster in the north, Munster in the southwest, Leinster in the southeast, Connacht in the central west, and Meath in the central east. Now, each of these districts would have a lot of different family clan dynasties that would be fighting each other for control of their districts in order to be called the, the kings or the ruling families of that district. These district kings would then vie for power against each other for the title of High King of Ireland. So, for example, um, there was the, the Uineal family. Um, and they they actually had two two divisions. There were the the northern Uineal and then the southern Uineal. And the Uineal family uh, was the, the major dynasty in Ireland leading up um, to the, the arrival of the Vikings and going into uh, the Viking Age in Ireland. They were located, uh, the northern branch of the Uineals were located in Ulster. So there would be an Uineal king of Ulster. And then, based on other uh, diplomatic connections, alliances, agreements, and things of that nature, they were able to consolidate enough power to be called the High Kings of Ireland. So, just a, a brief example of how that political structure worked. There's a lot more depth and complexity to that, but that's probably another podcast episode altogether. So, to complicate matters... Uh, with the, these dynastic struggles amongst families and amongst districts to become High King of Ireland, the church, uh, the church in Ireland also had a great deal of sway over the political landscape of Ireland. Uh, this would mean that uh, a powerful abbot uh, would sometimes be at war with other dynasties or maybe with other, other monasteries or other abbeys because they were so connected in the, the secular power of Ireland. So it wasn't uncommon to see monasteries and abbeys and uh, the, the clergy within them getting embroiled in these dynastic struggles and sometimes even participating in their own right, trying to gain power uh, for, uh, for the church. So clearly, Ireland at the turn of the 8th century so the late uh, 700 CE was not a peaceful or politically unified place with a lot of extraordinarily rich monasteries and churches. Now, if you ask me, this sounds like the type of place some intrepid Norse sailors would definitely find worth a visit. Part 2. The Coming of the Foreigners the Vikings arrived in Ireland very much in the same way that they did in England. 
with lightning raids on isolated monasteries. In 795 CE, the Irish Annals of Ulster, a, uh, an Irish chronicle of history similar to the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, uh, says that foreigners raided the monasteries on the island of Rathlin off the northeast coast of Ireland, as well as the island monasteries of Innismarie and Innisbofin on the northwest and western coasts of the island. These foreigners that were described in the annals were Norse raiders, most likely from modern Norway. Now what's interesting about the annals of Ulster is that they are one of the few sources um, written in the Viking Age um, by victims of the Vikings that make an effort to differentiate uh, the fact that Vikings weren't all one unified people. So, for example, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle will refer to all Scandinavian raiders or all Scandinavian traders and settlers. They are all Danes. They're all known as Danes. Um, you don't see a lot of differentiation from if someone, if a Viking came from Denmark or if a Viking came from Norway or Sweden or what have you. In the eyes of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, they were always Danes or sometimes heathens. Or, or just raiders, pirates, or things of that nature. But there wasn't any differentiation. However, in the Annals of Ulster, the Irish chroniclers do make a distinction between different Viking groups. And they do this in uh, an interesting way, I, I feel. They separate these foreigners um, into the dark foreigners and the fair foreigners. And by dark and fair, it's believed this is referring to um, hair, hair color, um, or hair fairness. So when they're describing the dark foreigners, it is believed that these would be the Danes, uh, the Vikings and raiders and traders from Denmark, uh, as it's assumed that they have a darker... Um, hair tones, more of a, a brown and black um, hair, hair color. Whereas the fair foreigners are generally considered to be the Norwegians. Um, again, thinking kind of in stereotypical terms of the Norwegians having more light-toned hair, more blondes and reds uh, compared to a brown, the browns and blacks, uh, in, in terms of hair color, of course. So it, it's interesting to, to see the, the Irish make that, that differentiation that these aren't all necessarily one people as you see in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. So it's because of that uh, differentiation that we're able to assume these early raiders were Norwegian or came from modern-day Norway versus uh, someone from Denmark or Sweden. Now, the early raids started sporadically, as they did throughout the rest of Europe. Started kind of small-scale, quick-hit-and-run raids on uh, isolated monasteries or undefended villages. But then, these raids began to grow in frequency, once word of the wealth of the Irish monasteries was spread to other Viking captains and chieftains. By the year 820, 
Viking raids were common all around the island. No corner was left unscathed by a Viking attack. In the year 832, the largest and most wealthy monastery in Ireland at Armagh, um, I believe I'm pronouncing that close to correct if someone <laughs> uh, listening knows the correct pronunciation, uh, please leave it in the comments um, and I will, I will eat my words and admit that I was wrong. But uh, this large monastery um, in, in Northern Ireland uh, was raided three times in a single month. And this, this monastery was supposed to be kind of the seat, the seat of power for the Catholic Church in Ireland. And it was raided three times in a single month. Now, that in and of itself is an impressive statistic. But even more impressive to think about is the fact that this monastery was nowhere near the coast. It was relatively far inland. So, the Vikings uh, were beginning to feel some strength and some power uh, in the region that they felt comfortable marching from their coast away from their ships, uh, which were the source of their power and their intimidation, uh, being able to get in, get out quickly. They were willing to leave that behind and attack this, this seat of power and, and wealth and prestige in Ireland uh, because they felt that they could and they could get away with it. And they did three times in a single month. Uh, so just kind of showing the the confidence of that the Vikings had in their power in this region that, hey, no one can stop us. We can just go in and, and take this important place of theirs, get out, get back to the ships, no problem. So definitely uh, very, very brazen of them, but they got away with it. So they were they were right to feel confident in that. By the 840s, the Vikings were coming to Ireland in full force, and they were starting to establish permanent settlements. These settlements were known as longports, and they became the hubs of Viking activity not just in Ireland, but for all the western Viking world. Um, connections were made from these longports in Ireland to ports in modern-day Spain and France, there were close connections between uh, Ireland and uh, Viking settlements and ports in western England. It allowed for raiding in Wales and Scotland, as well as trading and communication with the islands in the North Atlantic. So you're talking about Orkney, the Faroes, uh, Iceland, and then from Iceland the connections to uh, Greenland, and eventually to, to Vinland, whatever small connections there were, much later on in the period, of course. Um, but it establishes uh, the, these connections for Viking activity throughout the West, uh, not just in Ireland, but it really connected the global Viking trade network that was developing at the time. So what started as simply safe harbors and places to trade for Viking crews also ended up becoming the first major urban centers in Ireland. Uh, as we said before, Ireland before the coming of the Vikings was very communal farming type of communities with um, small urban centers developed around monasteries. But with, with the Vikings and the settlement of these long ports, Ireland now had... 
uh, large urban trade hubs. And many of these long ports would go on to become the some of the great cities of Ireland. Uh, even today, cities such as Waterford, Wexford, Cork, and Limerick all started as Viking long ports. Now, the largest and most important long port in Ireland was the city of Dublin, uh, which was viewed as the jewel in the Viking crown of the Irish Sea. Now, of course, the Irish didn't just sit idly by and let this happen. At times, Irish chiefs would set aside their differences and form coalitions that were able to oust the foreigners from their long ports. However, the Vikings and their Norse culture were here to stay, and we begin to see some interesting integration uh, between the Irish and the Norse in terms of culture. Part 3. Norse Integration into Irish Culture So while the Irish and the new Norse settlers often clashed, their two cultures did begin to mix, um, and by the mid-9th century, the Vikings had become a part of daily life on the island. Now remember those warring Irish kings who were trying to kind of one-up each other and become the High King of Ireland? Well, they very quickly began to see the value of the Vikings as warriors, who could easily turn the tide in their dynastic struggles. And so they began to hire the Vikings for just such a purpose. Uh, Vikings were very valuable mercenaries in these Irish dynastic struggles for, for kingship, and they gained a reputation, as they did throughout the, um, the northern world at the time, as you know, these fierce, ferocious, very um, professional, very capable warriors. Um, you know, if you look at the Byzantine Empire, which we haven't gotten to in this podcast yet, but we will get to it. Uh, you look at the Byzantine Empire in um, modern-day Greece, Turkey, in that area of the world, the uh, Varingian Guard, Varingian Guard down there, were the... Um, the personal bodyguard to the emperor there. So the prestige of Norse warriors and Viking warriors was seen the world over, and these Irish kings were no exception. They definitely saw the capability of these warriors and definitely used them to their advantage on many an occasion. But apart from being hired mercenaries, the Vikings and Irish also began to peacefully commingle with each other. Just like in other lands where Norse culture uh, kind of came into contact with uh, the native cultures of the land, uh, for example, in, in England, where they came together with the Anglo-Saxon cultures, uh, the Norse started to take wives and build families uh, in these new lands. And often those wives were of that original culture. So... Vikings who established themselves in, say, Dublin, or at one of these other long ports, began to take Irish wives and then have uh, Norse-Irish children. And many of this second generation uh, of Norse and Irish descent were given Celtic names and started to adopt Christianity and started to merge Norse culture and Irish uh, Celtic Gaelic culture. Uh, besides cultural assim assimilation and, and mixing like that, 
Economically, the establishment of Viking long ports opened Ireland to a global trade network that, until this time, they seemingly had no little to no interest in joining. Um, before the, the Viking arrival and before the establishment of the long ports, there really is no evidence of large-scale Irish um, trade outside of the island. There w- isn't a lot of um, imported wealth coming in from other places, and there's not a lot of evidence of wealth from Ireland going elsewhere. That is until the establishment of the Viking long ports. Um, and after the period, or after the long ports were established in the mid 800 CE, we begin to see large hordes of imported gold and silver goods and a lot of imported wealth um, found in Ireland. And this is strong, very strong evidence of a massive increase in global trade and wealth coming into Ireland during this time and this is clearly through the facilitation of viking merchants as they had um, interconnectivity between all the ports in in western europe and and beyond down to uh through the rus uh through kiev to the byzantine empire and into into persia and by connection from persia to the the far east so the establishment of the long ports added Ireland as a kind of a key um, cog in this internal, or excuse me, international um, trade market. Ireland was now connected to a global trade network that they weren't before, and we're seeing a great influx of of wealth into the island, um, thanks to the Viking merchants and their trade connections. And these trade connections um, would make these long ports very powerful um, places of power, places of prestige, and places that made the rulers of them think beyond just trading hubs and think in terms of kingdoms and dynasties of their own. Part 4. The Short Rise and the Quick Fall of the Kingdom of Dublin. So as I've mentioned earlier uh, throughout this entire podcast, it seems, Dublin very quickly became a place of great importance to the Viking presence in Ireland, and it shortly became the center of an attempted Viking kingdom that would cover vast swaths of both England and Ireland. In the year 853 CE, a Viking captain by the name of Olaf the White along with his cousin Ivar the Boneless, whom some of you may know, uh, arrived in Dublin, and uh, they established themselves as the kings there. So Olaf the White and Ivar the Boneless come in, and they they basically say Dublin is under new management, and establish themselves as the kings of Dublin. And so under their rule, Dublin grew... Um, in political power from just the city itself to a vast swath of territory um, in the countryside surrounding the city. And it even extended out past the shores of Ireland uh, to the Isle of Man uh, in the Irish Sea uh, between England and Ireland. 
Now, to we haven't really talked about the Great Heathen Army yet. Uh, but may, some of you, if you've seen the History Channel's Vikings or have played Assassin's Creed Valhalla where they talk about the Great Heathen Army, you, you might know, uh, you, yeah, you should know um, about a little bit about the Great Heathen Army, the Sons of Ragnar Lothbrok, of which Ivar the Boneless is one, um, and their conquest of England in 865. So, um, after... The, the capture of the English city of York by Ivar and his, his brothers, the Ragnarsons, in 865 CE, Ivar was named by the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle as the king of all the Danes in England and Ireland. Now, while it's never outright stated um, anywhere besides this one instance in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, we can infer and we can hypothesize that for at least a short while, all the land from Dublin in Ireland across the Irish Sea, uh, across the north of England over to York, could have been considered one great uh, Viking kingdom with Ivar as its overlord. Now, of course, as the great heathen army moved throughout England and overthrew kings, they would set up puppet kings uh, in in their place to to rule. Uh, however, they were just that they were puppet kings. So, um, after conquering York, the brothers Ragnarsson uh, did set up a puppet English king. However, he was uh, had to be a tributary to the Ragnarssons, and so it could very well be we could infer that Ivar was seen as this great king of this great Viking kingdom that spanned both islands. Um, however, whether this was how people at the time viewed it, whether this is just a fun hypothesis, or whether it's absolute malarkey, good word choice, I know, this great kingdom of Dublin, from Dublin to York, was short-lived. According to the Annals of Ulster, uh, Ivar the Boneless was killed by an Irishman in the year 873, and following his death, the Kingdom of Dublin hobbled along for, for many years until the Irish finally drove the Vikings from the city in the year 902. This, however, would not be the end of the Vikings in Ireland. Part 5 the end of Viking dominance in Ireland. So, yes, the Irish did manage to drive the Vikings out of Dublin following uh, the death of Ivar and a few, a few decades of hobbling along, uh, but not having any real power. So, the, the Irish did manage to drive them out. The seat of Viking power on the island was, was empty and was held by the Irish. This, however, was not quite the end of the Viking Age in Ireland. Slowly, uh, slowly but surely, the Norse were able to reclaim many of the long ports that they had lost to the Irish, and were able to recapture Dublin in 917. Many powerful Viking captains at that time, um, many captains and many sea kings, so powerful captains with a lot of ships and a great following, but no, uh, no kingdom on land, 
they saw the the recapturing and the reclaiming of Dublin as their opportunity to reclaim the great kingdom that had once been held by Ivar the Boneless. And there were some that had fairly successful attempts, but they only lasted for a few years or maybe maybe 10 years or so before they were ousted by one warlord or another warlord or, or something of that nature. Until finally, in 954 CE, the great city of York fell into the hands of the English king. Now, the, the English... This is going to be another podcast episode, so I will gloss very quickly. Um, following the Great Heathen Army's conquest of England in 865 into 875, um, England had been divided between the the English throne uh, held by Alfred the Great and uh, a bunch of Danish and Norse uh, kings and chieftains who divided up half of the, the country. And since um, since that time, following the Battle of uh, Eddington, uh, Alfred the Great and his family, his children, uh, and the successors that came after him as the kings of Wessex and the kings and queens of Mercia, they slowly pushed the Danes and the Norse and the Vikings out of their lands that were called the Danelaw and began to consolidate all the power uh, from these kingdoms into one nation, the Kingdom of England. So by the time we get to 954, the Kingdom of England is um, much more powerful than it was when the Ragnarsson brothers came in 865. And so the the English uh, the English king, the um, King of Wessex, still descendant of Alfred the Great, conquers the city of York. And with this, this conquest, with the fall of the city of York to, Eng to the English hands, the dream of a great Viking kingdom based in Dublin and controlling the northern swath of England and vast portions of Ireland was all but dead. Um, there, there wasn't really any new aspirations to try and reclaim this kingdom uh, now that York, one of the prime positions of the kingdom was in English hands. While it was no longer the center of power of a great kingdom, Dublin remained a major player in international trade, and the Viking kings of Dublin held on to a fair amount of power on the island. Dublin enjoyed close to 30 more years as an independent Viking power, but in 980 CE, the last Viking king of Dublin Olaf Sigtrygerson, I believe I mispronounced that correctly, um, faced the king of the Irish kingdom of Meath. And to any Irish speakers who may be listening, I apologize in advance. Uh, the Irish king of Meath, Mael Sheknail II. Again, I apologize if I, I'm sure I butchered that. Um, these two kings, uh, the king of Dublin and the king of of Meath met at the Battle of Terra uh, just outside of Dublin and the Irish won the day. They they ousted the, the Vikings from Dublin yet again. And this was effectively the end of Viking autonomy in Ireland. 
Now, Dublin was still ruled by Viking kings. There was still a Viking king in Dublin. And it was still the center, well, not the center, but a center of global trade. However, now the Viking kings of Dublin had to pay tribute to their Irish overlords and would be called upon to fight in various wars as vassals. Now, many people believe that the Viking Age in Ireland ended in 1014 at the Battle of Clontarf, and it's true that many Scandinavian warriors were present at that battle. However, they were acting, more evidence supports that they were acting as vassals and retainers to the Irish kings involved in the battle. And there is little to no evidence of any kind of independent Norse objectives in the fighting. So the Scandinavians in Ireland continued like this for many more years, managing the, the global trade connections in Ireland and paying tribute to their regional kings. The Scandinavian presence in Ireland continued like this until the 1170s CE, when the new Norman kings of England invaded Ireland and took Dublin for themselves. While they were finally driven from the island for good, the influence of Scandinavian culture can still be felt in the history and culture of Ireland to this very day. So there you have it, folks. A brief history of the Viking Age in Ireland. Now, as always, there is so much more detail surrounding all of this. Uh, you know, there could be an entire lecture done on Ivar the Boneless's time in Ireland, on the initial raids. There could be numerous lectures done on just the political structure of Ireland uh, during this time on its own. And we will definitely be touching on a lot of that in future episodes. And I greatly look forward uh, to being able to record those. But hopefully, this has piqued your interest in the history of uh, Viking Age Ireland. And maybe, if you if you get a chance and you get to play the, the new DLC for Assassin's Creed Valhalla, it'll give you a bit more of a deeper appreciation for what what history the game is trying to portray and what what they're showing um, through through this pop culture media outlet uh, that is Assassin's Creed Valhalla so uh, without further ado uh, dear listeners thank you so much for tuning in Please, whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's Google, whether it's Apple, whether it's Spotify, uh, wherever you might be getting this podcast, please, uh, please leave a like, a comment, a share, uh, subscribe, um, and anything like that. Um, you know, it seems like a, a small thing um, to, to you. You know, it, it's just click of a button. Um, but, but to us here at Foster's Corner, or for us at, in the Viking encampment as a whole, and for our, our sister podcast, Hell or High Water, our D&D podcast, uh, those little things mean so much to us uh, because it helps us kind of play with the algorithm um, and it allows our, our podcasts to potentially reach a, a wider audience and more people can, can hear um Hear, hear our shows, be entertained, be educated, um, and um, it would really, really help us out. And anything that you can do, a like, a comment, share, subscribe, uh, whatever your platform allows, 
uh, from the bottom of our hearts. We would really appreciate that. Uh, thank you in advance. And also, one uh, new bit of, of news and information that we're happy to share. We now have a Kvasser's Corner Twitter account. Yes, we're on a social media, folks. Um, so if you're on Twitter uh, and you want to want to connect with us and you want to have a conversation or ask a question or something like that, you can find us on Twitter at Kvasser K. Um, you, you'll see Kvasser's Corner um, at Kvasser K. Um, so yeah. Leave, leave us a, a message on there if you want to want to talk to us, um, or if you have a question, something that you want us to address on a on a podcast episode, you can ask us that question on Twitter using the hashtag #AskCrossier, um, and we'll we'll see those, uh, tag us in them, do do whatever you got to do, and and we'll see them, and hopefully we'll be able to answer your questions on a future episode. So, uh, without further ado, dear listeners, thank you for tuning in, um, and we will see you once again next time on Kvasir's Corner.